Welcome to Backstage at Upstage, a presentation of Upstage Lung Cancer, which uses the performing arts to raise awareness and funding for lung cancer research. Here's your host, the founder and president of Upstage Lung Cancer, Hilde Grossman. Hi, I'm Hilde Grossman, and we're so excited to have you with us today backstage at Upstage. And here's my good pal, Jordan Rich. Thank you, dear friend Hilde. Today, we're going to explore the Human Genome Project and the work being done right now with the study of genetics to help detect and diagnose lung and other cancers and to offer treatments and possibly even cures. Hilda, we welcome back to the podcast Dr. Jane Wilkinson, Senior Director of Bro Genomics Alliance Management of MIT and Harvard, and Assistant Biology Professor at the Koch Institute for Integrative Cancer Research at MIT, Dr. Francisco J. Sanchez Rivera, who at this very moment is running a laboratory in Cambridge focusing on the human genome and its connection to cancer. Hildy, two outstanding guests. We can't wait to hear what they have to say. Today, we'll try to make a complicated topic something even I can understand. Many of us have heard about the Human Genome Project, but most of us couldn't explain it to someone else to save their life. <laughs> there are terms that are basic to the project, such as genes, genome, DNA, sequencing, and no, wait a minute, don't be frightened out there listening to this. We're going to make this all very simple and accessible for you. So I want to actually introduce someone to you who worked on the Human Genome Project, and she'll help us understand what a remarkable project this was. Jane Wilkinson, welcome. Thank you, Hildy. So first, could you explain some of these basic terms that we need to know to really understand what you're going to talk about in terms of your experience with the project? Yeah, I think I'm going to start off by explaining what the what what the human genome is and what our genomes are and what um, um, and what what have they ever done for us? Um, you know, the the human genome is really the it's the biological map for everything that really goes on in in our body. It, it drives a lot of a lot of development a lot of diseases it it it's good for some things it's terrible for others you know and i like to think about it as you know it's a book what we did was we basically created a book of um the thirty thousand genes that are in the human genome that's about three billion bases and they're divided amongst 23 chromosomes so for me the way to think about it is each chromosome is a chapter of the book and all of the genes that are located within the individual chromosomes are really what drive a lot of the development um, it, within our body. And you know, Francisco is gonna is gonna take the story from me later and tell me about and tell us all about how these genes have led to us really discovering more about um, genetics and especially cancer genetics. So can I just jump in and see if I if I can understand this, I know the audience will too. So genes are things like they determine the color of our eyes and maybe how tall we are. And um, maybe if we have certain kind of talents, they're related to these genes. And so those are important particles inside of us. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. And the Human Genome Project actually started out with one or two humans and um, they were the contributors to the original genome project 
I think what's really important for us to talk about is how far it's come um, when we understand, um, when we try to understand the different genes and the different things that they drive is that that original genome project was one or two people. We now have access to hundreds of thousands of human genomes. So we can really start to understand the differences between individual populations. And, and also very importantly, I think, especially for cancer is the different populations as they exist within different environments. So it's incredibly important that we've taken the genome project into, uh, you know, now a library. You know, we use the book analogy. We, we came up with that original book and now we've reprinted that book hundreds and thousands of times over in different populations and different parts of the world. So we really have a library of information now about genetics and genes and how they drive us and how they drive disease. And so how did you get involved in this project in the first place before we go further in the science of it all? Yeah, how, how did that happen? Yeah, it's um, it was really an incredible journey for me. Um, I um, I was in uh, the University of Liverpool and I re replied to this tiny little job advert in the back of um, a science publication. And yes, this was in the days of when jobs were advertised in in print. Um, and it was for a very small new um, institute called the Sanger Institute. And um, so this was April 1993. Um, um, I was actually looking to relocate from Liverpool, UK to Cambridge, UK. So this fitted perfectly with some life things that were going on for me. Um, and what I did there is I joined an amazing person, um, Professor John Salston, who actually went on to win a Nobel Prize and actually became knighted in the UK as well, to work with John on a project called um, the C. elegans genome. So the nematode genome, the nematode is a tiny little worm that lives in the ground. It has a very, very simple um, biological structure. It's what we call a model organism. It's something that we can interrogate um, very easily at a biological level. It regenerates quickly. Um, it's really easy to visualize in a microscope. You can actually see how cells um, individually divide. So that was the first um, multicellular genome that um, was ever undertaken. Um, our success with the nematode, the C. elegans genome, led us to believe that we could take on this crazy project called the Human Genome Project. Um, you know, and what I like to think about with the Human Genome Project is really one of the greatest feats of exploration in human history. But instead of going to the planets or to the other side of the earth, we were actually doing an inward journey of discovery, looking inside of ourselves. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that's really important to point out is this really was the first truly international biology collaboration. It was an international team of researchers. Um, the researchers came from six different countries, um, the US, the UK, France, Germany, Japan, and China. And it really was the first consortium-led big biology project that we've ever undertaken. Um, it really defined collaboration. Um, we started, started mapping the genome, so breaking it up into its chromosomes and into you know some bite-sized chunks that we could all kind of literally wrap our heads around. We started mapping it in October 1990, and the genome was 
eventually finished in April 2020, April 2003. Can I ask you a question? So how does that happen? I mean, how, how does mapping happen? Um, how do you break it up in chunks? What is yes. What is so, this? So, so back then, we used something called BACs, bacterial um, artificial chromosomes, and we mapped and, and assigned parts of the genomes to these artificial bacterial chromosomes, which really broke it up into bite-sized chunks for us. And by breaking it up into these bite-sized chunks, this allows us as individuals or um, um, part of the consortium to divide the genome up across the world. Um, my particular um, division of it was I took on the chromosome one initiative. So I led the chromosome one sequencing component and chromosome one is the largest chromosome and that's my brag on the human <laughs> genome. I, uh, I, I, led, I led the largest one. But there were 2,800 researchers involved in this. And, you know, it, it really was that first big, large-scale collaboration. But it also proved to us all that we could do this. We could take on really, really, really big problems. And as we come together as collaborators, we can really solve them. Um, the genome was given an original budget of $3 billion. Um, it actually came in under target, um, and we only spent $2.7 billion, which is a ridiculous amount of money when we think about genomics now, because right now we can do a, a person's whole genome um, probably for less than $500. Mm -hmm. And, you know, instead of it taking... 13 years, we can actually turn around an individual's human genome in a couple of days. So, oh my you know, God, isn't that incredible? Oh my God, this it is mind-boggling, right? It is. To think how far we've come, but also, you know, not how far have we come from a technology point of view, and there was a huge amount of technology development and leaps in, in innovation during the genome project itself to today. But really taking the data and understanding it at a biological level, that what we call translation, translating the individual genes into actually understanding how they define diseases and how they define development. You know, it's been such, such a revolution of science. It's amazing. So I have another question. So when you, you were assigned chromosome one, right? That's because you're a star, you would get number one. Um, if, so how do they determine this is called chromosome one? And what, what did you know about chromosome one to begin with? Well, um, we've always understood the, um, the physical um, layout of the chromosomes. You can actually look at an individual's chromosomes from a drop of blood. We've always been able to see and understand the chromosomes themselves. You could also do things like chromosomal banding as well. So that can identify different, you know, from an imaging point of view, we've always well understood and well characterized the chromosomes and what they've potentially been responsible for the some very, um, very obvious diseases where the genetics are very so are so very clear. Um, what the genome project has allowed us to do is break that down at a word by word basis. So instead of just looking at the picture of the chromosome, we can now actually see everything that goes into it genetically on a base by base um, level. 
and Francisco, please jump in here. You're the you're the university lecturer. Um, you're the you're the actual official teacher here. So I'd love to get your perspective too. Uh, so yeah, if you want me to put the the importance of the Human Genome Project in the context of cancer, I'll be happy to to do that. In doing so, I'll revisit some of the points that Jane did at the at the beginning, which I think right. are important to emphasize. So I think um, before we jump into how we've done that translation, I want to pick up on a couple of large-scale projects that tumbled out of the Human Genome Project, which I think will segue really nicely into Francisco's work. Um, you know, there were a couple of projects that came out of understanding the genome at a basic level. We then created a project called the HapMap project. And what that allowed us to do is understand genetic variation between individuals and different populations. Um, ENCODE which um, helps us to define the functional elements that come out of DNA sequencing. Um, but the thing I really want to talk about is, and the project that I was involved in as we progressed and as I, as I came across the pond and joined the Broad Institute across the street from, um, from the Koch Institute, and, and they are a great collaborator of ours, is the Cancer Genome Atlas Project. So we affectionately call this TCGA. What we did here is we took 33 different cancer types, including 10 rare cancers. We did DNA sequencing on all of those cancer tumors from 11,000 patients, and really started to interrogate um, the cancers at a genetic level to really try and start to understand any genetic signatures that could be potentially shared amongst the different cancer types. Um, it allowed us to really define different tumors and different cancers at a genetic level, um, really start to break them down at a molecular level. But one of the projects that, you know, I'm sure we're all incredibly interested in and we've all thought about is um, a project called the NCI Lung Map. So this is the National Cancer Institute. So this is the U.S.'s um, federally um, funded and run um, cancer pro program. And what they've done is that they've looked at multiple different, of lung, multiply different lung cancer types and are really trying to understand at a genetic level the changes in the different tumors so we can really start to understand the tumor itself at a molecular level, but also start to offer very, very um, personalized and very predictive um, treatment plans based on the, the molecular and the genetic understanding of those of those lung cancer types. So and that's been a huge success for the NCI. So Francisco, I'm going to let you kind of take it away from there. I've kind of maybe laid the tarmac on the road to um, cancer genomics and where we are today. So I'll, I'll, um, I'll let you drive the car. Thank you, Jane. Uh, so maybe actually what I'll first do is revisit a few important points that you already made, because I think that um, even though we, we live in an era where we talk about genes and, and we talk about mutant genes being involved in diseases, I don't think that the most people out there uh, fully grasp what this actually means. I, I constantly feel like we should be incredibly amazed at the fact that we can do all these things these days. So um, first of all, 
when, when Dane mentioned that we have sequenced many different genomes across the world, one important point to keep in mind is that um, these are all genomes composed of the same four letters. So all of our genes are composed of combinations of just four DNA letters, which are A, T, D, and C. And the precise nature and order in which these letters are arranged essentially determine who we are. And specific strings of these letters are what make genes and other regulatory elements that Jane mentioned function. Um, and so this is really important in, yes. No, I was just gonna, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but I, no again, I'm gonna stop you when I stop understanding. So, yeah. <laughs> so what does this mean? There are these ADDC letters, like what does that mean? Like uh, somebody typed on a typewriter and that's, those are those letters. I mean, what, what do you, what does this mean? I don't understand. It almost, it almost means exactly that, but A, T, G, and C are called DNA bases or nucleotides. These are the only four bases that are composing our genome. And so they're in the chemical? order- Is it yeah, a chemical? They, they, are, they are chemical bases, yeah. They're okay. just called DNA bases, but they are essentially a chemical structure, an organic so, molecule. So they're different chemicals that just get the title of one letter. Is that right? Yeah, and they, and they connect between each other and actually the, the order and the way in which they connect is what determines you know, genes and genes therefore determine traits, how we look, et cetera, but also you know, influence disease outcomes. And this is particularly important in the, in the context of cancer. Um, so maybe I can use, just use this as a segue to talk about cancer. So the reason the, the projects like the Human Genome Project initially and efforts like the Cancer Genome Atlas are so critical for understanding cancer is that cancer is largely a genetic disease. And that means that cancer is caused by alterations to our genes, which are made of DNA. So as I mentioned, all of our genes are composed of these different letters and changes in the order of these letters are commonly referred to as mutations. And so mutations can cause cancer, they can also cause other diseases, but they can also influence the way we look, the different, you know, different populations, different people have different uh, sequences of genes, even though all of us, all four of us here have the same 20 to 30,000 genes, the sequences between our genes are slightly different in important ways. This was really so um, clear now because you hear the word mutation and, you know, all you can think of is what is it, the mutant turtles or what does, <laughs> you know, what does that mean? But to just spell it down, spell, haha, you know, like just the alteration of the sequence of those letters, um, that's amazing. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. So not every mutation is bad and that's something to, to keep in mind because mutations actually fuel evolution so organisms undergo natural selection over time through mutation and that influences how they look how they function uh and how they acquire disease and whether they have lower or higher risk for certain diseases so not every mutation causes disease and this is really important to to keep in mind 
So uh, in the context of, of my, my own lab, for instance, we're interested in, in uh, learning which mutations cause cancer and understanding why and how the cancer-causing potential of these mutations can vary depending on the individual. So by that, I mean some mutations in some people can cause cancer, and the same mutations in other people do not cause cancer. And, the, and that's a very important point. No, no, that's what, but I think that, again, this is super interesting in a general sense because it feels like it fits with kind of more um, macro level of, of disease and problems. Like there are people who have um, herniated discs who can hardly move and somebody else has the same herniated disc who doesn't seem to have a difficulty. And so why our bodies respond to the same, now you're at a micro level, but why why our bodies respond differently is just, I, I haven't a clue, but it's really interesting. Yeah, and, and, and it has a largely genetic component. And the only way we can understand this different genetic components and how they vary depending on the individual and across populations is through DNA sequencing or, sequ or technologies that arise from DNA sequencing. Yes. Where are we, if I can just jump in with only one question that matters to, on my end, and thank you, Hildy, for asking all the questions that I already had, but where are we on the, on the time scale in terms of uh, advancement? Because Jane laid out a beautiful chronology, and we know how technology is rapidly advancing as it, as it moves through year after year, decade after decade. So if we were to put a, a scale up, uh, say, 1 to 10, Obviously, 10 is probably impossible for any, any scale, but where are we? Are we at a three or four? Is that easy to quantify in terms of success and understanding? It's a little hard to, to, to quantify in that way, but let me just actually put it in context. So uh, today, when a patient goes into the oncology clinic, they, have, they undergo a biopsy of their tumor, or a, or a blood isolation, if it's some leukemia or heme malignancy, those cancer cells are sequenced. So the DNA of those cancer cells is sequenced. And some places can sequence the whole genome, but we don't really need the whole genome to, uh, to carry out diagnostic and treatment decisions. But the point is that every patient goes and has their tumor or tumors sequenced. That is hugely important and it still blows my mind when I think about it because it's routine. And the reason it's routine and many of these DNA sequencing technologies are now routine is because of the Human Genome Project. There, these technologies would have taken decades longer if it wasn't for the, the Human Genome Project international, international effort. Um, so the reason why it's so informative to sequence these genes is that again, Mutations in these genes are what causes cancer. So essentially, we have within our bodies the seeds for cancer development. Because if we acquire certain mutations in certain genes, we will develop cancer. It's not some exogenous force that causes cancer. It is, to some extent, that causes mutations, but it's really the mutations in our genes that lead to cancer development. So by knowing exactly which genes in patient tumors are mutated, we can start making treatment decisions and diagnostic decisions. 
And this is hugely important. This is now routine in the clinic. So if you were to ask me, where are we in terms of one to 10? I would say we are uh, about eight because we still, we're still trying to understand what all of these genes and what all these mutations are doing. And this is actually what my lab is, is particularly interested in. So, you know, we as humans have roughly the same genes, but again, not every mutation causes cancer in every human being. And on top of that, those specific mutations can influence the types of treatments that patients will undergo. So if a patient has a certain mutation, we know for some of them that they will be sensitive to certain therapies, but for others, we actually don't know whether they'll be sensitive or resistant. And actually there are mutations that respond very well to certain therapies and actually respond very poorly to other therapies. And actually some therapies can accelerate the disease progression if the drug to mutation combination is not correct. And again, this is so important to keep in mind because we are now able to connect genetic information to therapies. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. As thousands of audience members know, upstage lung cancer events, the concerts, are fun, meaningful, inspiring, and memorable. And you should know that we invest in cutting-edge diagnostic research to find lung cancer early and greatly improve on the five-year survival rate. We also bring voice to the fact that young people get lung cancer. They really do. Unfortunately, doctors don't know how or why. Proceeds from our concerts support research to help find answers to these questions. Hilde Grossman and her team aim to entertain and inform because the show must go on. Find out how you can help at upstagelungcancer.org. Now back to the podcast. Here's Hilde. You're talking about in terms of doing these sequencing uh, of the of the genes from the tumor from the biopsies. This is what leads to biomarker testing. Is that correct? Yep, right. exactly. Yeah. And and so, it, what's going on in your lab at this point in terms of using this diagnostically? As you said before, you're trying to look at well, and I think that's what we've certainly had podcasts on um, not only biomarker testing, but targeted therapies, choosing yeah, exactly. a therapy to aim specifically at that mutation. What do you think needs doing in terms of diagnosing cancer, lung cancer early? Yeah. So, you know, the diagnos- diagnostics are very urgently needed, I would say. So for, for some cancers, most cancers, if they're caught early, you might have success in terms of treating that cancer or actually just removing the tumor, depending on the, on the type of disease. Uh, but some cancers, for instance, pancreatic cancer, just to give an example, by the time it's found, it's often very lethal. So being able to diagnose that disease very early would dramatically shape uh, and transform the way that cancers are detected or treated. Maybe some patients will not need to get treated, Maybe they're caught early, they would not um, suffer from metastatic disease, which is typically what, what kills uh, cancer patients. So, right. one metastatic key disease, meaning, meaning that the cancer will travel to other parts of the body. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, there's a couple of things that come to mind. The first one is that um, genetic profiling is hugely important because uh, you could, for instance, genetically profile people 
that don't have cancer so that you can identify who's at a higher risk of developing cancer. There are certain types of alleles, which are versions of genes. Each gene that we have is composed of two alleles, one that we got from uh, one of our parents and the other one that we got from the other parent. So those can be different. And sometimes you can inherit an allele that has a specific alteration, a different order of this DNA basis or a different base at a specific place where it shouldn't be. And that mutation can um, increase the risk of someone developing cancer. So that's one way where I think we could potentially uh, intercept cancer earlier or even prevent it, prevent it by knowing which alterations uh, people have. And so when you're saying genetic profiling, are you, what are you talking about? Is that the whole um, gene map of a the whole person just to see what's going on everywhere? Or are you just talking about if there's something in the family that people are concerned about, such as lung cancer, that's another one yeah. like, like pancreatic cancer that does not have great early diagnostic tools yet. Um, both so of them are both of them are correct. Actually, you you nailed both of them. Uh, and even even though we are now getting used to technologies and things like twenty three and Me, they're actually the same principle. Knowing what types of of single nucleotide polymorphisms, without getting too technical, this means that there are different letters in different genes depending on the person. So some of those single nucleotide polymorphisms can influence whether someone will get disease or not. And by doing this kind of genetic testing, you can capture some of those and have a better understanding of the risk that someone might have to develop a certain disease like cancer. And how so does that test? One, yeah, how do they do that test? How, how would that be done? Uh, this is as easy as isolating blood from uh, someone. So do you look at circulating DNA or? Well, that's what, what I was going to get uh, on the second option. You're very advanced. Sorry, uh, I didn't I have to mean say. to jump the gun. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, know, you know a lot about, about uh, some of the scientific jargon here, because the second one that I was going to mention is uh, the ability to, to by, through sampling blood, isolate both circulating tumor cells, often called CTCs, or circulating tumor DNA, also called ctDNA, which is present on either by itself, actually in, in some cases, but also within the CTCs. And so um, often you can identify, well, in some cases you can identify CTCs in people where you don't readily identify uh, a primary tumor. So in theory, by sampling the blood of someone, you can ask whether a person has CTCs or ctDNA. And if they do, you can actually sequence the genes that are present in that cell or the DNA that is circulating it. And you can actually use this to detect specific mutations that might influence uh, cancer development or progression. So for instance, yeah. No, I was just wondering, where your lab is in terms of yeah. looking into these things now. Yeah, so 
So the key point here is that every cancer patient is unique. If you take 10 cancer patients and you look at their tumors, they might have some main, often called driver mutations that might be shared between these 10 different patients, but the additional mutations that those tumors have might be different. And those mutations might influence both development, progression, and response and resistance to therapies. So, so I was yeah. just going to say, I'm sorry to interrupt you again. So we've done a number of uh, podcasts with EGFR as one. Uh, so would that be an example that if you did some, te- or is yeah, that so, something different? Well, actually, EGFR is uh, really one of the poster childs of what is now referred to as precision oncology or right. precision medicine, because uh there were at least two landmark papers, both of which came out of uh, the Boston area, MDH and Dana-Farber, where they identified patients that were exquisitely responding to an EGFR-targeted therapy. And they were interested in understanding why, and because they were using an EGFR, the small molecule inhibitor for EGFR, uh, or a therapy for EGFR, they went and sequenced the EGFR gene, all of those patients, and identified that there were specific mutations in EGFR in those patients that were responding that were absent in the patients that were not responding. Again, whoever's listening to this should now listen to our podcast on Exxon. Um, and I'm guessing that's part of what you're talking about. So there are like, um, there are within EGFR, as you say, you, you think, that they would all respond to targeted therapies, but not not all of them do. So the Exxon 20, I believe that was what it was. So we've tried to help people understand that as well. So this is great. Yeah, so the the way that we're now tackling this problem is by leveraging a whole set of technologies that, again, just like DNA sequencing blow my mind, (laughs) these technologies blow my mind even more because Uh, These are called genome editing or genome engineering technologies, and they essentially allow a researcher to take cells, any cell type or any organism, really, uh, and you can go specifically and introduce any mutation of interest anywhere in the genome. That means that you can rewrite the genome of cells to try to understand how introducing a specific mutation within the background of the genome can influence phenotypes like cancer development. I think it's incredible. You know, we, it took us 23 years to read the genome, and we're now at a technology level where we have such accurate pinpoint capabilities to now make edits to it. And and that is really a lot of the work that's going on in Francisco's lab. And I am just in absolute awe. It's incredible. Oh, it's thrilling. I'm so excited. So so would one of those technologies be CRISPR? Is that what because I, I think Jordan had a question. Well, uh, well I had I a, sure I had a, I... you had a comment and a question. Comment, we've got to get Hildy a lab coat immediately because she's <laughs> 
She's amazing. I'm sitting here watching yeah. and listening, and I'm, I'm learning from everyone, including you, Hildy. And, and another comment is just weird uh, in, a, in a good way. You said 23 years, and, of course, I hear 23, and I think 23 and me. Oh, <laughs> I just wow. thought that was yeah, interesting. I, you know, I never realized that. It was 23. Jane, you can use that. Chromosomes. You yeah. can use that in your talks to uh, garner big money uh, <laughs> funding. It. But I, I just had one additional sort of generic question, and then I'll let the scientist, Hildy, get back to the specifics. We hear often, and it sounds like science fiction, that we'll be able to determine at birth or early on who might be likely to be obese later, who might be likely to, to develop a certain kind of cancer. Is that still uh, science fiction or is that getting closer and closer? I see Jane, both of you nodding. So Jane, would you want to start and then Francisco comment? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, from understanding and interrogating the genomes, from looking at multiple different populations, looking at the environmental factors that affect these different populations, we are developing something called a polygenic uh, risk score. Um, we've seen a lot of advancement in, on this, especially in the cardiac field, where we can start to give a score, you know, a prediction of, of how different people may develop diseases um, in the future. So that that science fiction is already here and that's already happening. Um, the NIH has a huge project that's driven around this. Um, you know, and it, that's also how folks like 23andMe um, do their work as well. They're assessing a risk based on, on all of the data that we'd understand um, from the genome. Um, Francisco, do you want to follow up on that? Yeah, so I think we're, we're, the other part that is incredibly exciting is the fact that we can, again, systematically interrogate all these mutations, but, uh, which I'll go uh, to in a second. But uh, to just step back, this is not science fiction, it's reality. But there are uh, a lot of ethical considerations that yeah. are uh, part of the big debate as to whether, you know, it would make sense to to uh, tell a two-year-old, you know, the, well, the parents of a two-year-old that that um, child might develop a disease later on because, honestly, we don't have sufficient collective uh, information to say with over 97% certainty for instance that that's true it's just yeah. we don't have enough experimental information on patient level uh, population level information yeah that's a really good comment and you know i can talk personally on a project that i was working on um, more population driven and less cancer driven where we were looking at we were doing something called newborn screening so we were doing genetic analysis on newborn babies but we were very careful and incredibly sensitive to only ever return data that impacted the newborns as a newborn. It is not our place to um, call out what could potentially be an adult onset disease at two weeks old. So it, there are a lot of ethics around this and a lot of really careful work that we have to do about how we use these, this polygenic information. So. I was just gonna add also, um, so when I'm not when I'm not a musician with a jazz group, when I'm not running upstage lung cancer, I am uh, by day also a psychologist. Um, and so um, PhD from Northwestern, hey, hey. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, one of the questions that came up during my internship um, was the questions, it was around Huntington's Korea. And, you know, at that time it was 
actually early, you know, a little while back, but it was that kind of question. If you were able to know you, you know, if this was in your family, if you were able to know exactly, because some offsprings will get it and some will not, if you were able to know, would you want to know? As a psychologist, that puts you in two different camps. There are some people who would say absolutely because it will help guide how I'm going to live my life and other people who would say I, that's all I'd be worrying about my whole life. I'd rather not know. So it feels like all of this, we're into such an interesting area of, of psychology and, and the interface of psychology and medicine and um, going forward and ethics um, and um, errors in prediction. So if somebody said, by the way, when you hit 50, you will have pancreatic cancer and you live your life in a way that you know, you're skydiving and everything else once you get 40 um, <laughs> and you don't get cancer at 50. So I think it's just so unbelievably interesting. This is so great. I'm just thinking we should have a second podcast. Yeah, I was going to talk about a whole lot of other things where because we're using these technologies of genome engineering to actually introduce all of the mutations that are seen in patients at once. Well, this is such an exciting area. I um, am beyond stimulated and um, excited by all the um, information we've discussed today. And I know we have many more things to talk about. So listeners out there, stay tuned. We will have a part two of this incredible conversation. I want to thank Jane and Francisco for joining us and sort of uh, sharing this incredible information. Jordan, as always, perfection. And so all of you out there, I hope we've answered many of your questions or if you've heard terms that you haven't understood, hopefully that's clarified. Uh, and made uh, genetics a little easier. So thank you so much and stay tuned. We have more to come. To find out how you can join Upstage Lung Cancer in raising awareness and funding to beat lung cancer, visit our website, upstagelungcancer.org. We invite you to subscribe and download our podcast available on all platforms. And we love reviews and ratings. After all, we're showbiz people. There's more entertainment and inspiration to come on the next podcast episode of Backstage at Upstage.